Welcome to the Low Rates High Returns podcast, where we'll uncover the timeless investment principles so you can escape the rat race, earn passive income, and create lasting wealth. I'm Pete Wargent, investor and financial coach, and I'm joined by Stephen Moriarty, private investor and the co author of our new book, Low Rates High Returns. In each episode of this podcast, we talk about the crucial concepts around managing your own money, how to invest, when to invest, and the key lessons we've learned along the way about generating passive income. The things we discuss in this episode shouldn't be taken as financial advice, and we recommend you reach out to a licensed professional advisor who can help you with your unique circumstances. Enjoy the show. G'day, welcome to the Low Rates High Returns podcast with me, Pete Wargent. I'm here with Stephen Moriarty today. As morning. <laughs> Never know what Afternoon, to say. Afternoon, morning. Which one are we in? <laughs> so today we're going to talk about uh, fundamental versus technical versus quant, or slightly catchier title, perhaps the commonalities of great investors. So just um, I usually try and think of a sporting analogy when I start these things because I've got a simple brain. Uh, so I, I grew up in... Uh, South Yorkshire, and obviously uh, the most famous sportsman was Jeff Boycott. And um, he, people always used to say... <laughs> really? he, Jesus. Well, Yorkshire, you better get a move on. Famous, uh, not, not always for good reason. Cricketer, but, cricketer, most famous cricketer. Yes, I should say, yeah. And, uh, yeah, I mean, he, he was always uh, derided for being boring. You yeah. know, he, he always had, like, forward defensive, and, you and know, he was. his whole stick, would, he, he could bat for days on end. And people would always uh, criticise him and, and for not... You know, scoring quickly enough, but he he basically said, but if you look at it, you know, something like seventy percent of shots in Test match cricket are a forward defensive or some kind of variation on that shot. Yep. And he said, if you didn't have that basic uh, fundamental uh, basis to you know to, to actually build an innings on, your innings wouldn't last very long at all. Yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, something... yeah, if you took a swing at every shot, sort of thing. Yeah, that's it. Now, Tips obviously. In Test match cricket, it's a very intriguing sport. Now you can go and play in India on you know pitches that are dry and dusty and spin a lot, and you can go and play at Perth on a, a rock hard pitch. So you've got different variables and different bowlers. But um, his argument was that you, you still you need to have that sound uh, defensive model to build yeah. the whole of your game around. Um, so uh, today we're talking about, um, and it's I suppose only obliquely related to that, but superior models for investing. Uh, because obviously there are many different ways to invest. There are different time frames, different yep. personality types. Yep. Uh, as I mentioned in the title, there, there's fundamental approaches, technical approaches. So you've got to find one that works for you. But also um, you need to look at what are the commonalities between the greatest investors. And you'll find that there are a few themes that run through all of that. Yeah, yeah. The, if you have a look, the one thing I did when I was younger and started out investing was you sort of get pulled between, oh, I want to be a Warren Buffett investor. Oh, no, I don't. I want to be a Paul Tudor Jones, you know, technical uh, analyst investor. Oh, no, I don't. I want to be like Jim Simons and be a quant investor. Um, and you, sp- you spend a fair bit of time bouncing off the walls for trying to figure out which one you are. But this is what we talked about um, in, a, in the very previous episode, is that you, you, just like in any field, field or sphere of life, you spend some time just trying all the different things yeah, yeah, before yeah. you find your own route. So like in, in cricket, you'd, you'd spend uh, one week, uh, you'd try smashing every ball and, you know, that works for a while, but then it doesn't. Then you yep. think, right, maybe I'll try a different approach. Yeah. Same in, you know, golf or rugby league or whatever it is until you find your niche and your model that works. Yeah, I think so. What I tried to do after a few years 
was look for the common characteristics of each of the styles. And so it's a sort of like a, oh, you know, cross-pollination or something, but just sort of saying, what are, what are the characteristics of being fundamental or being a, a technical analyst or being a quant that makes successful investing? Um, a lot of the time, you, you, you know, when you see stories, um, and this is one thing Taleb was really good at, was when, you know, the millionaire next door, and everyone said, oh, you know, here's the characteristics of the millionaire next door, um, blah, 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 blah. And then Taleb said, yeah, but what about the people who implemented those characteristics, but they're not a millionaire? Or the other one was, you know, what about the people who preyed on the Titanic and still drowned? Yeah, so the, You don't hear from them? The millionaire next door, I haven't read that for about 20 years, but the, the basic concept was uh, that your average millionaire or most millionaires are basically people who drive... Toyotas, they live in modest houses. Yeah, they they basically spend less than they earn and put the rest in the stock market. There was there was in other words, there was nothing particularly special about what they did, but they just were basically living modest lifestyles. Yeah, and therefore time and compounding just allowed them to become. But I, I I don't I think that's deceptive because I think what Taleb says is right. Is well, what about all the people who drive modest cars and? you know, live modestly and, you know, I, I mean, let's be honest, lots of wealth's inherited, not in all cases, but it pretty well helps if your parents are a millionaire and they cark it and leave you a few bucks. You well, know, it's like, like you said the other day with Kerry Packer, you know, yeah, like yeah, yeah. tremendously successful, yeah. but if it had just taken his inherited wealth and whacked it in the stock market. He'd have done better. <laughs> so, but I think, so the common characteristics really, when you look at it, are not, you know, what I'm trying to drive at is there's there's sort of simple stuff that Buffett, if you say Buffett is the epitome of a, a, a you know, a fundamental guy or a value investor, um, Paul Tudor Jones might be a, a TA guy. And then you've got quant guys like Jim Simons and people like that. If you try and look for the common characteristics, it's usually simplicity is at the top, you know, and even when, you know, a lot of Buffett's memes and, you know, quotes and stuff are really about the simplicity of life by not making it complex. And the same thing with, you know, stuff like I'm, I'm not good at it and I don't do it, which is technical analysis, but simply saying we'll have a stop loss of 2%. If it hits 2%, right, bail out. Okay, well, that's a fine, simple rule. Actually, know. let's spend some time because I know we, we have a lot of... Um, uh, property investors who tune in and they're looking at stocks for the first time. So let's just talk a little bit about those different approaches to investing. So fundamental analysis, which is something we talked about in uh, the last episode about, um, you know, that might might involve, for example, trying to work out the uh, the implicit or intrinsic value okay. of a company by looking at its future cash flows. Uh, so traditionally, uh, Buffett is known as to be the sort of value style investor. So looking at the fundamentals of the individual company. Uh, but as um, we've previously touched on there, uh, the difficult part of that is just the sheer number of variables. Yeah. Uh, now, it's not to say it can't be done, and some investors do this very well, but you just need to be aware that uh, you could spend um, dozens of hours analysing an annual report and making fancy projections. But if you get one of those variables wrong, uh, the whole thing can collapse in a heap. Yeah, yeah. It blows. It's um, basically fundamental investing is sort of like look at the balance sheet, look at the moat or the, you know, the, the brand or the franchise, as uh, Professor Greenwell calls it, 
uh, and the earnings power, you know, how it, how it will earn over a, a cycle. It's probably, um, I don't know whether I can say it's the most popular form of investing. It probably is amongst um, the institutions um, because it's perceived to be a better model to invest over the long term, which is what you are talking about before about, you know, compounding your wealth. Technical analysis is much more considered short term. I don't actually think that's right, but, but simply by saying, well, if you buy and sell stocks every, you know, four months or six months or even 12 months, it doesn't really mean that you're not thinking about compounding. I mean, there are great, you know, technical analysis investors out there that have been doing it for 20 and 25 years. And, and again, they've got a successful model, but a lot of the time it's not a model that is based on a lot of complexity. It's just not, it, it, it's just too arduous to take that on as a task. And it's the same with quantitative investing. You know, a few small variables, they work, they're tested, and then you just, you know, like we were saying in the, the previous podcast, you just repeat the process all the time. So technical analysis, many people would understand that as effectively um, looking at charts, looking yeah. for patterns, good times to buy and good times to sell based on historical patterns that have and gone before. And investor behaviour. And um, I suppose the um, it can be, technical analysis can be criticised because people, I think um, Buffett probably said once that if you gave people a random uh, chart of uh, any given stock, they would just start to see patterns uh, because uh, a bit like uh, the old saying, it, it, to somebody with a hammer, every problem looks like Dang a nail. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, a number of investors have used technical analysis uh, successfully. Often, though, um, some of the simpler methods seem to be the better ones in, in terms of things like moving averages and yeah, yeah. rather than uh, some of those charts you see with 4,000 different lines on them and it, well, it looks it, like a dog's breakfast. Even Buffett himself, you know, and Charlie Munger does this too. You know, it's a bit like, oh, you know, if you're not doing it like this, then, you know, you're an idiot. And it's a bit like, well, yeah, okay, Charlie. And again, back to Talib's point, it would be a bit like, well, Charlie, there's plenty of people out there doing technical analysis and uh, they're doing all right for themselves. Or there's, you know, there's, I'm sure Jim Simons, who's probably the world's best known quant and has better returns than Buffett, might sort of argue that, well, being a Buffett investor is not the only way to make money in the stock market. And most people will tell you, or most experienced investors will tell you, not everybody can be Warren Buffett. And part of it is, you haven't done you haven't done investing for you know sixty or seventy years. The second part is that you know it helps if you get a bull market, and you know as circumstances dictate, there's plenty of people who can make lots of money in a bull market and look like a genius. Whereas you know it's a lot harder to make money through a bear market. Um, but there are people in TA who make money out of bear markets because they buy and sell over a shorter frame of time. You know, yeah. is it wrong? No. Nah. It's a really good idea. And, you know, some uh, Ed Easterling talks about this in his book, Probable Outcomes, you know, and says, look, if you're in a bull market, you can put your sail up and, you know, the wind will push you along. But if you're in a bear market, you've got to change your strategy. And a lot of the time, it can be quite simple to say, as you said before, all right, I'll, I'll buy and sell on the 200-day moving average or I'll have a stop loss of 2%. Or, you know, blah, blah, blah. It doesn't require that you go, oh, well, now I'm going to go and have to read, you know, 25 encyclopedias on technical analysis to work out how to do it. 
there's heaps of information out there these days. And with computers, you can implement fairly simple models and, you know, adapt to the times and still make money. Yeah. So, uh, and it's, yeah, as you said, not everyone can be Buffett. We don't all have cash cow insurance businesses throwing off uh, tens of billions of dollars for us to invest. But let's talk a little bit about Jim Simons and um, some of his um, strategies of renaissance technologies. Not something that uh, most mere mortals uh, can copy, but there are some fascinating, uh, well, it's a fascinating story more than anything. And there are probably some lessons you can draw from that because most of the, uh, the employees or people who've worked there are not traditionally from... Uh, the sort of investing, There's no investors or economic background. No. They're very no. much more based around uh, mathematics, and looking for patterns, yep. and just executing. And uh, I suppose one thing we do know from markets is that people can react emotionally, especially when there are downturns, and there are patterns there that can be exploited uh, by some of these uh, remarkably uh, sort of detail-focused uh, investors like Simon. Yeah, yeah. You can go through. Um, Jim Simons is a is a notoriously uh, private guy. There's a book written about him. Gregory Zuckerman, I think, uh, wrote a book about him called The Man Who Solved the Market and said, you know, when he tried to write the book, Jim Simons, like, warned everybody off talking to him and eventually he came around a little bit and um, talked to Zuckerman a little bit about, you know, creating uh, renaissance technologies and stuff. But, yeah, he pointed out, you know, which is – you know, I mean, you've got to think, it's pretty insightful for a bloke to say, I've never hired an investor in my life. You know, I've never hired an economist. I've hired physicists and I've hired mathematicians. Now, it, it's pretty stunning when you go, oh, but the stock market's connected to the economy. And it's like, no, not really. It's just a big bunch of patterns. So, you know, for me, that was a bit, that was a bit of a revelation along with Ed Thorpe saying, you know, Fundamental analysis is garbage. It's a bit like, oh, geez, that's a bit of a big call. But you actually look at it. And as I said, TA, there was, I remember years ago, a guy said, oh, I can't remember who it was, but it was like, oh, you know, a bunch of people staring at a chart. You know, how ridiculous. They didn't want to know the name of the company or, you know, what the company did. And you sort of go, yeah, yeah. And then you look at people doing TA and going, well, they seem to be doing all right on the stock return, so there must be something to it. Now, they might be in a bull market, who knows? But it's still basically saying it's not complexity that wins the day. You know, just because you make a system more and more complex doesn't mean that you actually get better and better returns. Yeah, so I guess every investor is looking for that superior model and everyone will have a favourite model uh, which they believe will give them superior market returns. I think it's quite clear that for most of us, um, simplicity where a simple model is likely to do better than an, an overly complex model. Yep. Um, and, but I think it's quite clear as well, when you look at all those different investors, fundamental, technical, quant, um, there are clearly there's more than one way to do it. And this is where we talk about uh, the Enneagram assessment. There's nine different personality types, yeah. types, but also, as we mentioned in one of our other models that we use, the three wells, there are actually different timeframes for people to invest in. So... We talk about wealth three being your your sort of long term or uh, legacy bucket, uh, but you've also got uh, wells one and two for to cover your living costs over the next year, and well the, the middle bucket, which often people are missing, well two to cover uh, your lifestyle costs over the next five years. So 
Um, there are there are different aspects and different timeframes you can look at, and I think so. A lot of it will come down to you know the best model. You can tweak it to your own preference because some people uh, they love stocks. They want to be on the you know every day. They want to spend a few hours looking guilty at- as charged. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas other people, um, they often we get people come to us and say, look, if I had a model which required me to look at the stock market on one January. Yep. and I didn't need to look at it for the rest of the year. That would be just fine, fine by for me. me. Yep, yep. Uh, so uh, they usually make the best returns. Yeah, well, uh, <laughs> bastards. Th- that really comes back to what we were talking about. That yeah, often yeah. simple uh, can be complex because yep. people can tinker too much with a complex system and get too bogged down in the detail. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You get that. Um, it's again, like I sort of say sometimes um, about you know, you read the Ten Commandments and you sort of think, okay. They're not going to work every time, but they'll probably get you through most situations. And that's what you want to, you know, you want to think about. Because if you've got, you know, a great, the, the more things you make complex means the more variables you've got in it. But it also just means it requires much more effort. Um, I remember Monash Parbrai, you know, the sort of Buffett clone investor, said that he had a checklist and it had, you know, 75 things that they had to check. <laughs> Yeah, like I would have looked at that and thought, oh, God, you know, by the time I got to the 75th one, the share price would have doubled. Life's too short. <laughs> you know, so I I'd sort of, I've always been, you know, I like to think thoughtfully lazy, but also by just sort of saying, look for the, you know, you've got to keep questioning something to say, okay, that's interesting. Is it relevant? Does it actually add value? And I think a lot of the time what we try to do is we add complexity and make us look clever rather than actually add value, you want to sort of, you know, create your own language, you know, or like, you know, doctors or lawyers and things like that, where it gives you the upper hand in terms of knowledge. But when you boil it down, it's actually pretty simple. And that's what we sort of try to do in our program by just sort of saying to people, look, let's not use any jargon. And I'll explain it to you with metaphors and, you know, stuff that's pretty easy to understand. And as you said before, most property investors are sort of like, oh, I don't know anything about stocks. And then when we explain it to them, it's a bit like, oh, well, this is pretty easy, isn't it? It's like, well, it's not, you know, it's not complex in that sense to actually generate fairly decent returns. Yeah. So the interesting thing, and we've talked about a number of investors here. So Buffett, Soros, Tudor Jones, Jim Simons, uh, Ed Thorpe, you know, the father of quant investing. Now, they've all got their own approach. So clearly the question is not, you know, which is the best approach or which is, you know, which is the superior model. They can all work. Yes. I suppose the question is more, uh, well, how much time do you have to devote to markets? How much interest do you actually have in the market? Uh, what stage of life are you at? Yeah. All of these things are much more relevant to which is the, the best model for you. Now, we, we have our own preferred simple model, but of course, people would often want to tweak these things to suit their own purposes, really. Yeah, yeah. It, it's again what you said before about it gets down to, you know, we've got well one, well two and well three, and that covers the time frames. So it, it, it's, it's a, you're able to sort of say to people, look, if you want to, you know, if you're like me and you love stocks and you want to look at it every day and, you know, you want to do something, okay, you can have a look at the well one strategy, but you can also do a well two strategy, which might be required, you know, six months or 12 months, or you can do a well three strategy, or you can do them all together, which is what I do. Um, but I do that because I love stocks. Now, you know, if you, if you like me, 
that's fantastic. But as you say, some people and and some of our clients say, oh, yeah, that's good, mate, but I don't want to spend, you know, every day at stocks because I've actually got a day job. It's like, okay, here's a model that you can use that, again, is fairly simple. And a, a lot of the time I always sort of think if you if you taught something complex, you could turn a person off really quickly by just going through the complexity of what you've got to learn. Oh, you want to play the guitar? Well, you better have a think about what guitar you're going to get and when you're going to practice. And look, strings are really important. Try to get your own sound. You know, think about what kind of music you want to play. It's important to get a good teacher, blah, blah, blah. You get to the point where you go, oh, mate, I just want to play some songs. You know, it's like, well, you know. So that, that can be a real turnoff. If you can avoid that by simply saying, as Tommy Emmanuel said years ago, look, what you're teaching is basically motor skills. You know, fingers moving across strings. That's what you're teaching. It takes a little bit of a thing to get a handle on, but it's a lot easier to, to coach somebody and say, look, here's a few simple principles. This will get you on the road rather than, you know, trying to throw someone into a discounted cash flow straight up and going, this is the way to do it. Most people sort of go, oh, that's revolting. Yeah. Oh, I can't do this. And it looks too hard, you know, which is yeah. immediately and it, off-putting. And it's not really that correlated with returns. Yeah. So the the uh, the title of today's podcast was The Commonalities of Great Investors. Now, if, if I was better prepared, I'd have worked out how many, but I can think of probably, <coughs> just based on what we've talked about, there's probably half a dozen things that, uh, sort of common threads, if you like, um, that link um, what those great investors do. So clearly one of the key things, and it, it was I think it was Buffett who coined the phrase, don't lose, but that's really... Uh, whether you're a trend follower or a quant or yep. a fundamental, you know, not losing money is clearly something that is common, whether it's Soros or Tudor Jones or whoever. Uh, so that that would be one obvious point, you know, that, that is protecting the downside. Yep, absolutely. Uh, clearly, there's an element of timing uh, for all of these investors. They're not simply saying, well, you know, they're not just mindlessly going into the market and go, right, oh, yep. just throw my money into the stock market. Um, timing is clearly critical yep. uh, because if you want to do better than average, then you need to at least take into account uh, some kind of market timing. So I think there's that old phrase, uh, you're in the moving business, not the storage business. Yep. Uh, so all of these investors, uh, despite what you might hear about uh, Buffett, you know, they're, they're all investors who actually buy and sell. They don't just buy and always hold yep. regardless of market conditions. And, and the, the personality is another one. You know, you have a look at them and most of them are very seriously thoughtful people. You know, like um, I, I must admit it was Munger who said, you know, I've never met a smart person who doesn't read. You know, and, sorry, <laughs> I said bugger. I, I hardly get the time these days with so, the kids. But you know what I mean. Like, yeah, you, yeah. You, always you talk learning. to you talk to Buffett or Howard Marks or Jim Simons or, and you know any of the experienced technical analyst guys. They're all really thoughtful. You know, they all think, they all read, and they've all come to the same sort of conclusion that, you know, you it's all if you work on your own personality you'll be a lot more successful than if you don't work on your own personality. And part of that is, an important part of that is saying, and as we, we teach on our sessions in personality, sort of say, you know, you really want to know what you're doing and why you're doing it. Because if you don't, you're going to run into the same stupid behaviour 
every time. So that's a really good point. So ob- objectivity. Yeah. And that's where our Enneagram assessment comes in. And if you haven't done it already, definitely um, send us an email and we'll we'll uh, give you the Enneagram assessment and send you an investment map for your personality type. Yep. I mean, clearly, uh, all of those investors, systematic, methodical. Yep. Uh, Potentially an element of proportional betting in there as well. Uh, yeah. So particularly for, uh, well, I'm thinking Soros, Buffett, those types of investors. You know, when when there's an edge, uh, they they don't um, tinker around at the edges. Yeah. They place larger bets. Yeah, Buffett said, um, when it's raining, opportunities reach for a bucket, not a thimble. Boomtish. <laughs> which is, um, you know, and even even the Kelly criterion, which we've talked about before. You know, like. It does boil down to something pretty simple, which is sort of saying, well, if you've got an edge, you should probably back yourself. Now, you might lose once or twice. That's the way it happened. But over time, you'll do well. And all we sort of say is if you sort of looked at market cycles, you'd probably be, you know, the odds are in your favour this at this part and they're not in your favour at this part. TA people might say, well, above the 200, you should buy and below the 200, you should sell or trend followers, I should say. Um, you know, what I'm saying is there's simplistic rules that can govern a whole myriad of ways that you can make money in the stock market. The idea is to find one where you go, that's the one I like. I like, you know, quant or I like TA, and then burrow down into that one. Because what you'll find is, to tie it back to what you are saying about Jeffrey Boycott is, you start to see the same things where you go, ah, okay, front foot defensive, front foot defensive, and then there comes the loose ball, that's when I'll, you know, that's when I'll break out and take a shot. And that's the same in the market where you say, the market's expensive, it's expensive, now it's cheap, now I'll get on the front foot, right? And that's the edge. Mm. It's not, it's no more complex than that. And even in market cycles, as lots of people tell you, you can buy crappy companies and still make lots of money not because they're crappy companies, but because the market's going on an upside. And that's really simple. Yeah, I mean, that, that Boycott's whole point was if, if you uh, if you focus first on not losing, yep. and then the opportunities will come along in time, and that's when you capitalise. Unfortunately, in his case, he was still too defensive. <laughs> Borg was all shitless for about 20 years. <laughs> no, but Bjorn Borg did the same thing. You know, Bjorn Borg said, they said, why are you so successful? And he said the elimination of error. You know, what do, what do robots do? They eliminate any randomness and error. You know, they just methodically do the same thing. And it's what simple systems and simple models do. Just keep repeating that process, you know, and that's the way they succeed. I was watching um, Augusta National released all the old US Masters episodes to the COVID crisis. I was watching Faldo v. Norman. And Faldo, in that final round, he was so boring. He just like, just here's another three word, middle of the fairway. You know, par five, not not going for the green into just a yeah, little yeah. A layup shot, but it was absolutely, it was just spot on every time. Relentless, yeah, yeah. yeah, and it it uh, probably soul destroying for the for the opposition and Greg Norman in that case. Yeah. Often, uh, just to wrap up on today, Steve, I often listen back to these episodes uh, in my own time, or sometimes driving in the car. It's a bit sad, and uh, there's often just little nuggets of information in there, and I just think. If people listen closely, I think that is an absolute priceless piece of information or wisdom that you've gleaned there. And just one thing that I took away there today, you often hear this, um, there's a sort of a, a meme, if you like, that compounding your wealth must involve long-term investing. And there could be an element of truth in that because obviously the longer time horizon you have, 
uh, the more time you have to allow compounding to do its thing. However, um, it's often sort of implied that to compound your wealth, you must simply buy an investment and hold it forever. Yeah. However, that's quite clearly not the case because we've got uh, multiple examples we've talked about today of people who've compounded stupendous wealth. Yeah. Uh, but in some cases, uh, a la Simons, uh, not by holding investments for very yeah. long at all. And in fact, <laughs> in many cases... two seconds. <laughs> yeah, and in fact, uh, there, are, there are quant investors out there these days who... Um, you know, with high frequency trading, yep. you know, they could hold trades for, for no time at all. But the point is, uh, because they're not losing money, uh, they will compound their wealth um, tremendously over time. Yeah, yeah. And that was just one thing I just picked up on there that yep. compounding your wealth doesn't necessarily involve hold, holding investments forever. Uh, it's more about not losing money and making sure that well, you win more than you lose, essentially. Yeah, absolutely. Brilliant. Thank you for today, Stephen. A good half an hour. So uh, thanks for joining today. Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to leave us a uh, positive or friendly review below. Helps us to get the word out. And, I'll leave um, a bad one for Pete. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for the Jeff Boycott analogy. Yeah, trash him. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, look forward to uh, seeing you next week. Thanks for joining. Cheers. Cheers. See you next time. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you want to know more, you can download a free chapter and extra bonuses from our new book, Low Rates, High Returns. Just visit www.lowrateshighreturns.com forward slash book to download your free copy. The things we've discussed in this episode shouldn't be taken as financial advice and we recommend you reach out to a licensed professional advisor who can help you with your unique circumstances. Stephen and I are both on LinkedIn and Twitter so do reach out and connect with us. And finally, it'd be great if you could subscribe and leave us a review. It really helps others to find the show. Now take care and invest wisely. Cheers. Cheers.